Hi, I'm Jack, and this is Tuck In, We're Rolling, Queer Hollywood Stories. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich and the so-called sewing circle that constituted them and other queer women in Hollywood, early Hollywood. Uh, before I get to that, though, I wanted to apologize for the very, very late episode. Uh, life sort of happened all at once uh, with a million little fires to put out. So uh, I had to reprioritize, step back, but I'm back now, and hopefully after this weird Sunday episode, it'll be smooth sailing and weekly Wednesday episodes again. Once again, thank you for sticking with me. So I wanted to start this week's episode out by talking about Katherine Hepburn, even though she isn't going to be the main focus of the story. Um, in our episode about Dorothy Arzner, I mentioned that my second favorite Katherine Hepburn story was the one where Arzner saw her up a tree and decided to cast her in Christopher Strong. Um, I think it's time for my all-time favorite Katherine Hepburn story. So I read this little tidbit in Jean Tierney's autobiography, Self-Portrait. Uh, definitely a recommended read, by the way. Uh, so when Jean first came to Hollywood, she was introduced to Howard Hughes. And unlike most of the women that were introduced to him, uh, she didn't start a sexual relationship with him. And instead, he acted as a sort of patron to her. Uh, he very famously helped her get the best care for her daughter when she was born with um, pretty severe congenital defects but he also got her brother a summer job at his aircraft company. So Butch Tierney flew out from the East Coast and worked there for a summer, and he only met Hughes once. Uh, Hughes comes walking in one night when Butch is busy burning the midnight oil, and he's got this scraggly little street urchin with him, and Butch, honest to God, believes that Hughes has a little boy with him, and he can't for the life of him figure out why. So Butch and Hughes have a conversation something quick to the effect of, well, Butch, how do you like the job? Oh, fine, sir, just fine. Well, that's just wonderful. And Hughes leaves uh, with the grubby little ragamuffin in tow. And then later, Butch found out that the little boy was actually Catherine Hepburn. Now, I tell this story because I want to examine Hepburn's androgyny as compared to the overt sexuality of Dietrich and the glamour of Garbo. I feel like these women uh, had a certain androgynous quality to them, or at least uh, something a little masculine mixed in with their femininity. Um, but I think personally that Hepburn was the one that exuded that quality the most. Uh, now, Hepburn is the only American of these three. She's actually from Connecticut, which is where I was raised. Uh, she was born on May 12, 1907, and she was a very affluent, educated young woman. She only married once, uh, but she was romantically linked to people like Spencer Tracy and our boy Howard Hughes. I think it's interesting uh, that people whispered about her being primarily attracted to women, but she's linked up to these men who were thought to be bisexual. Um, the thing about Hepburn and Hughes being together is uh, that I wanted to point out uh, is that Hughes was attracted to her because she wasn't like most of the other starlets uh, that he attached himself to. Uh, she was very active. She was vibrant. Uh, she very deliberately dressed in trousers and never really went in for the glitz that was in vogue at the time. Uh, she was a golfer and she loved the outdoors. Um, when Spencer Tra Tracy first met her, um, he famously wasn't very uh, impressed with the dirt under her fingernails and thought she was a lesbian. Big shock. Um, and, you know, whatever kind of same-sex relationships Hepburn had in the past, uh, it was really very clear that she loved Tracy and wanted to be there and take care of him. In any case, regardless of the nearly 30-year relationship with Tracy, Hepburn is still the woman quoted as saying, old men all poops. I feel you, girlfriend. 
it's been posited that Hepburn actually fell more on the asexual scale, too. Uh, when it came to getting physical with her romantic partners, she notoriously disliked sex, so much so that if she saw um, naked people on a movie screen, uh, she would leave. Um, I found a source that says that when she... Um, claims that she didn't have a fling with John Ford, technically she wasn't lying. Uh, she was also a very private person, and as someone who grew up around a lot of well-bred Connecticut families, I don't think that's um, too far a stretch. Uh, you know, here's a woman who's um, pretty consistently called the greatest actress of the 20th century, and she's rumored to have asked someone to get her pretty brunette escorts and like to call herself Jimmy. Um, in the end, she did leave most of her love life and relationships um, a mystery, which is well, pretty fitting for Katharine Hepburn. Um, but this brings us all the way around to Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich. Uh, Garbo was born in Stockholm, Sweden on September 18, 1905. Uh, she's born into a pretty poor family, um, and she's very close to her father. She's this shy, sort of frumpy-looking kid who just daydreams about getting out of the place that she grew up, and she remembers her childhood as a very gray place. Um, her father dies uh, when she's 14, um, and she is just completely devastated by it. Uh, she wanted to become an actress because she thought it would be posh, uh, but she's kind of the misfit of her drama friends at the Royal Dramatic Theatre's acting school um, because she did come from this poor family and also because she's a little weird. Um, our buddy Louis B. Mayer brings her to America in 1925 because he gets fixated on her charm and, interestingly, her eyes. Um, and if you've seen photos of Garbo, she really does have these beautiful, um, deep-set, striking eyes. So she goes on to make a name for herself in silent films, and then, of course, she uh, makes an even bigger name for herself in talkies. Uh, so Garbo is viewed as this otherworldly, beautiful, and tortured foreigner. Uh, people just went nuts for her. They actually called it Garbomania. There's a joke in the book The Sewing Circle about a husband and wife on their wedding night, and the groom says he'll always be faithful with one exception, Greta Garbo. And the wife turns to look at him and says, me too. So Garbo's also over at MGM Studios. And I don't know if I've really talked about it yet, but MGM was considered to be a prestige studio. Uh, they did big budget pictures with big stars. They had people like Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, and Jean Harlow. Uh, they're the people that gave us Gone with the Wind. Uh, you know, I don't want to get in too much to um, Garbo's filmography or anyone's really, or I'd risk turning this episode into an IMDb entry, uh, but I will mention that she becomes known for playing women who make bad choices. Uh, she's very lustful, she's dramatic, and she's one of the very few actors uh, that I've ever seen who could use their eyes to convey emotion uh, without ever changing the expression on her face. So, if we hop on over to Paramount Studios, they're seeing Garbo's success, and they start chomping at the bit. They want their very own sexy European woman, which is really how the studios thought about their stars back then. They were all just so much product. Um, and their answer was Marlena Dietrich. Dietrich is, in a lot of ways, the opposite of Garbo. Uh, she was born four years earlier, on December 27th, in Berlin, uh, 1901 in Berlin. Uh, She's born into a very affluent family. Um, I think an article I read about her called it Wehrmacht royalty uh, or nobility, if I can recall correctly. Uh, and she was uh, going to become a concert violinist until she hurt her wrist. 
she ends up as a chorus girl um, and works her way up to bit parts in German films, meeting her husband Rudolf Sieber along the way. Uh, they married in 1923, and she stayed in Germany until Joseph von Sternberg brings her to Hollywood in 1930, five years after Garbo, uh, based on the success of her movie The Blue Angel. So Dietrich is a little bit different from Garbo from the start. Um, MGM made Garbo lose something like 30 pounds. Uh, they fixed her teeth and her hairline, plucked her eyebrows. They gave her the full star treatment. Um, again, stars were really a product back then, and uh, this is MGM fully marketing their product. Uh, you can see in photos of Garbo, she's a very stone-faced, cool-looking person, and if you ever hear her, uh, she has the, the voice. Um, it's a very husky, come-here-boy voice. And then you have Dietrich. The woman just oozes glamour. She's very expressive. I like to think of her um, as expansive, almost. Uh, she's totally in control of herself and everyone around her. I mean, this is the woman who wanted to take down the Third Reich by sneaking back into Germany and seducing Hitler. I I'm not making that story up. Um, I think a lot of people uh, point to her wild schemes like this. Uh, her answer to a problem was always sleep with it. And they think she was some kind of unhinged sex maniac. But I think it's very important to remember the times that these two women were around in. Marlena was acutely aware of what she was capable of, and she knew uh, what people would do for sex, especially for sex with her. Uh, she was using what she had to get what she wanted. I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, uh, but I also don't stand for people slut-shaming dead actresses or even uh, live actresses on, on this podcast. So where does this leave us in our tale uh, of the intersection of Garbo and Dietrich? The two claimed to never have met one another until 1945 at a party at Orson Welles' home. Uh, Welles is just beside himself. He wanted to be the one to introduce them. And at this point, Garbo's success had started to plateau. Um, she was actually pretty close to her retirement, uh, and that's when she tucked in the edges of her already extremely closed-off private life and became something of a recluse. Uh, Dietrich's career was also at a bit of a plateau, but it was looking brighter, um, and she still had quite a few good films in her at this point. Uh, they're introduced to one another at the party, and Dietrich is radiant. She's just so excited. Dietrich says to Garbo, you are a goddess. And Garbo mumbles, thank you, and walks away. And understandably, Dietrich is a little miffed about it. Uh, she passes a comment about Garbo's feet not being as big as everyone says, and everyone thinks that's sort of the end of it. The truth is, they didn't meet for the first time in 1945. They had actually met 20 years earlier when they both starred in a G.W. Pabst film called Die Friedlose Gasse, or The Joyless Street. Uh, the author, Diana McClellan, only noticed Dietrich after watching the film over and over and over again. At first, she couldn't identify Dietrich uh, because back when she was making movies in Berlin, she dyed her hair black. Uh, she's also not credited in the movie, uh, though Garbo has a title role. So McClellan is watching this movie, and Dietrich and Garbo get pretty cozy in it. Uh, at one point, Garbo collapses into Dietrich's arms. Now, Garbo would deny ever having met Dietrich before 1945 for the rest of her life, and it would take almost until Dietrich's death before she admitted that she had been in the movie, though she didn't for sure confirm anything about her relationship with Garbo. So why lie? Uh, McClellan posits a very convoluted answer involving Rudy Sieber's political affiliations, but she also points to Garbo's legendary secrecy. She was a very private person, so much so that if any of her friends spoke to the press about her, they were subsequently cut off from her life. Uh, Dietrich was a lot less careful about what she said, but I think it's worth noting that in a small world like mid-20s German film, she might have felt more comfortable saying mom if Garbo did as well. 
Uh, in the sewing circle, Axel Manson maintains that Dietrich and Garbo didn't meet until 1945, but he mentions that they shared a lover once they reached America, a writer named Mercedes Diacosta. Now, I'd never heard of Mercedes Diacosta when I started digging into the research for this episode, uh, but she's a very fascinating personality. Uh, she ran with the likes of Dorothy Arzner and Salka Viertel, who's an Austrian actress and screenwriter who seemed to moonlight as a queer women's matchmaker and caretaker in Hollywood. Uh, Diacosta was born in New York on March 1st, 1893, to parents of Cuban and Spanish descent. Uh, Diacosta was the youngest of eight kids, and her mother dressed her up in traditionally masculine clothing and called her Raphael, until one of the neighbor boys asked to see what was between her legs. When Mercedes realized that she didn't have what the neighbor boy had, she demanded her mother to tell her the truth. Was she a girl? And she was just devastated when her mother confirmed that she was, in fact, named Mercedes and not Raphael. And here we go back to this sort of um, androgyny, this kind of blurring of gender that occurs in these early queer women. Uh, Catherine Hepburn didn't like the word lesbian because she thought it was a word with very butch connotations, uh, but still was a very masculine character herself. I keep thinking about this disconnect in early 20th century, uh, how people would engage in homosexual or homoromantic affairs, but never really consider themselves to actually be homosexuals. Uh, my roommate Earl, uh, mentioned to me in a conversation a while back uh, that so many people in the way back when, uh, didn't really have a word for what they were doing. It was just a thing that they did. Uh, they didn't consider themselves gay the way that some people today might identify with the word gay. Um, and to be sure, people like Joseph von Sternberg went around telling actresses to definitely sleep with other women because it would make their art more believable. And maybe, at least in Katherine Hepburn's case, uh, she was so close to being asexual that she didn't want to pick a label because it would feel disingenuous. But this is all conjecture on my part. So, back to Mercedes Diacosta. She's a writer, like I mentioned, uh, mostly plays and a few novels. Um, she eventually writes a memoir, which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, she's introduced to Garbo through Salka Viertel in 1931, and she falls in love immediately. Uh, Diacosta is a bit of an anomaly because, like Dorothy Arzner, uh, she's out and proud. Uh, she has a husband, but they both know it's just to keep up appearances, and they do eventually divorce in 1935. Um, now, Mercedes is very confident in her ability to snag any woman that she wants, that she brags about being able to get them away from their men. Uh, besides Garbo and Dietrich, she has affairs with uh, Pola Negri, who you might remember from our Valentino episode as the woman who threw herself onto his coffin when he passed away, uh, Alan Azimova, who also had an affair with Dorothy Arzner, and the dancer Isadora Duncan. Uh, the Garbo thing, though, this is interesting. Um, it's been said that the Garbo affair was erratic and volatile. And this seems to be a pattern with Garbo, as I've heard the same thing said about her affair with John Gilbert. Uh, the only person who ever claimed close to marrying her was Gilbert, uh, though she refused him over and over again and remained single her whole life. Um, so Garbo and D'Acosta would go through on-again, off-again phases, but they would remain more or less friends for about 30 years. So around 1940, D'Acosta met Dietrich, or I should say Dietrich found D'Acosta sobbing under a table after hitting the skids with Garbo, and they got together on the rebound. At this point, the two of them were lonely and dealing with their own issues, and that always makes for a pretty interesting combination. Uh, Dietrich interestingly preferred to have sex with women, but very tellingly said often, you just can't live with a woman. So she and Mercedes were also something of an on-again, off-again sort of thing. I think um, in the grand scheme of this story, Mercedes and Garbo were the real item. Um, 
And with Merlina being who she was, with her appetite for sex and her ability to find new lovers when the old one bored her, um, she ended up being the one that Mercedes would go to when things with Garbo weren't going so hot. Uh, as these things go, uh, Mercedes kept quiet about her relationships, relatively quiet about her relationships with Garbo and Dietrich until 1960. At that point, she's very ill, and she decided to publish her memoir under the title Here Lies the Heart. It comes out, and it does not hold back. Um, a lot of people actually really love the book, um, but Garbo officially breaks off their friendship. And if you'll remember, Garbo is the type of person who would um, cut people off just for speaking to the press. So this isn't a huge surprise. Uh, one of Mercedes' former lovers, Eva Lagayenne, uh, sorry if I butcher that pronunciation, I don't speak French, uh, she just goes ballistic and accuses D'Acosta of making up stories for money. But not our good gal pal Marlena. Marlena doubles down on their friendship and continues speaking to her pretty regularly. So did Garbo and Dietrich deny knowing each other between 1925 and 1945 because of a tempestuous affair on the set of The Joyless Street? Did they decide to skirt one another because they were both involved with Mercedes D'Acosta? Was it an insane Stalinist plot? I don't know. Uh, I like to think that it was some combination of the first two. Uh, Garbo seems to be uh, a whirlwind, and Dietrich is completely on the uh, opposite end of the scale, cool as a cucumber, and I don't think it was uh, a great mix. Uh, combine that with the always convoluted queer dating pool, and it's a recipe for personal disaster, but it's a wonderful hidden gem of queer Hollywood history. Thank you so much for listening to Tuck In, We're Rolling Queer Hollywood Stories. This episode was written, recorded, edited, and researched by me, Jack Segreto. Uh, you can find a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes, along with some fun facts and photos, on our Tumblr, tuckinpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash tuckinpodcast. We accept messages on both of these platforms, so please feel free to shoot us any suggestions for show topics or comments that you might have. Uh, we put out new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. So don't forget to rate and subscribe to us. Uh, thanks again to everyone for being patient with me while I work on my own life and bullshit. You're the real heroes. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with an episode about Cary Grant and his husband. You did hear that right. We'll see you next time.